I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and probably turn it to the maps if you want, because uh, we're going to go all over the place this morning. Um, so I've been I've been engaging what I call what I call well I call a lot of things weird stuff, but I haven't really been preaching through a series of sermons lately. I call it free preaching. That's where I'm not really bound by any kind of schedule or uh, you know liturgy. So this is the last of those sermons, though. The last of these sermons. So next Sunday, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Amen? Amen. I'm going to start preaching through Colossians next Sunday. Colossians next Sunday. And looks like I have 13 sermons through Colossians. 13 sermons through Colossians. And uh, I think I'll preach them all next Sunday. <laughs> uh, probably not. We'll, we'll, break, we'll, break, we'll break them up and little by little. This morning, I want to talk to you about being an exceptional disciple, an exceptional disciple. And I wonder if you've ever showed up at a job. How many of you guys can remember what it was like to start a new job? Brand new job, first day on the, in the building. You walk in there, and maybe you wonder, what am I supposed to do here today? I always hate the first day on a job. You don't know where you fit. They say, hey, Terry, go over here and go with Bob, and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna show you the ropes and get you lined out. And Bob is, you know, he's a pro. He's a trainer. He's getting everybody lined out. And you just kind of spend the whole day following Bob around. And he gives you these little penny-any jobs to do. You don't really know where you fit. You can't get in a routine, or you don't know what time lunch is, because lunch is important, right? You don't know what time breaks are. I mean, you want to know all these things. First day on a job. Maybe, have you ever uh, seen a sports team that usually is pretty good, but then sometimes a good team will just become sloppy and just make a lot of mistakes. And the coach will have a meeting and say, all right, guys, or gals, it's time for us to go back to the what? The basics, the fundamentals of the Christian life. And I want to go back this morning and talk to give you these seven things about being an exceptional disciple, seven things that it takes to be kind of the the seven general orders, you might say, of Christianity. Now let's make a short prayer together, and then I'm going to give you this sermon, and then um, we'll do these other wonderful things. Let's pray. Lord, you know the the shape of my brain right now, and... um, in the other shape of my heart. And I pray, Lord, that you would help me to give this sermon you know, the right way. And I pray that it would be beneficial to everybody. And Lord, I pray it will be beneficial to somebody here today. I ask these things in Jesus' precious and glorious name. Amen. Of course, being the word disciple is a biblical term, and it means to be a follower of, to be a pupil of. A pupil of. So, uh, we see that manifested in different ways. There are different schools of thought. But being a disciple of Christ means you are a follower of Jesus Christ. And the Greek word there is mathetes, which means a disciplined follower, a disciplined pupil. Now, since we moved here to Michigan, I've kind of made an unofficial commitment to the way of the fly rod. So basically, I have spinning rods and casting rods, but I'm trying to be a real man and only fly fish. <laughs> and so I find myself, I'm thinking about that all the time. And I'm you know, reading about it, and you know, the, 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 the hardest thing about fly fishing is all the flies. 
There's tons of different kind of flies. And, you know, and they say, go out and scoop the top of the water, or roll over some rocks and see what's out there. And sure, I can do that. But then you got to go online and you got to look at these, these charts to say this is a, you know, this is a, uh, I can't even think of the name of one. There's an ant. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of names for these things. And trying to, to know where you're at, you can get lost in it. But because I've decided, I've raised my hand into the fly rod and I cannot go back. Now, you guys don't know that. The Old Testament says, I raised my hand to the Lord and I cannot go back. You know, that kind of thing. Jephthah's awful vow. How many of you guys know about Jephthah's awful vow? Well, maybe next Sunday. <laughs> so, um, you, just, you just have to learn this stuff. You have to learn about it. You have to, you have to think through it. So you have d- 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 devoted myself to that kind of fishing, right? If you're going to be a follower of Christ, you need to devote yourself to Christ and to the ways of Christ. The ways of Christ. And I'm going to give you some tips, some things to focus on in your Christian life to be a disciplined follower of Christ. But the first place it starts with is a decision. It starts with putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Following Christ begins with believing that He is your Savior. Of course, we all know that great old roadmap to heaven, the Romans Romans road. This says in Romans 3.10, As it is written, there are none righteous, no, not one. For we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The reason why Jesus came into the world is because mankind, womankind, peoplekind need a Savior. And Jesus Christ came into the world to be the Savior of sinners. He's not the Savior of the righteous. He's the Savior of sinners. Jesus said, they that are whole, they that are well do not need a physician, but they who are sick need a physician. This world is sick. And you, my friend, without Christ, you are sick as well. You are wasting away. You are perishing. And Christ came into the world to save you because you need it. You need it. And you're dying. You're wasting away because you're a sinner. That's Romans 6.23, the first part. The wages of sin is death. What you are going to receive in exchange for your sinfulness is death. Is death. If you go down to work this week and you work all week, you work 40 hours, 50 hours, and you get to Friday, you want to get exactly what you deserve, right? You want to get paid. You want to get your wage. Because you are a sinner, because you've done all these sins against God, your wage, what you deserve, is death. The wages of sin is death. Death. God is so merciful and gentle with us. God is, God, oftentimes he looks, God appears to not care at all because he lets mankind do whatever kind of evil they want to do. It doesn't matter. God lets them do it. But in the end, they're going to pay for that. They're going to die. And they're going to go into a place called Hades. They're going to be there in that intermittent period until the final judgment when they'll be resurrected from Hades and stand at the last judgment where they'll be cast into the lake of fire, where they'll be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's the future. That's, what, that's the death we're talking about. If you die without Christ, you've got to die twice. You have to die the first time, and you have to die the second time. That's the second death being cast into the lake of fire. But Christ Jesus came into the world not to give you what you deserve, but to give you what you do not deserve. Romans 6.23, the last part says, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
Paul uses contrasting terms there. He says, this is a wage, this is a gift. You deserve to go to heaven. You don't deserve to have everlasting life. And the gift is free. The gift is free. All you have to do is receive it. But like all good gifts, that gift was paid for. Have you ever, have you ever re-gifted? <laughs> Somebody gives you a gift, and you're like, oh, that's so great. Bless your heart. And then, you know, you go to a different circle of friends <laughs> or a different family reunion, and you re-gift it to somebody else. It didn't cost you anything, though, does it? It's the best kind. <laughs> but the gift of God was paid for by Jesus Christ. Jesus paid for that gift. That's Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. That in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. The ungodly. Romans 5, 8, But God demonstrated His love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ dying for our sins. Paying for our gift of everlasting life. Christ doing all the work required to get you into heaven. When J. Gresham Macon died, he was a Princeton theologian. Here's what he said. His last words, he was an odd man in life and he was an odd man in death. And on his deathbed, his last words were, so thankful for the active obedience of Christ, without it there's no hope. (laughs) What a weird thing to say. What he was saying was that was his theological mind kicking in. Because all of Christ's active obedience to God. Jesus came into the world. He did always those things that please his Father. Jesus, the Son of God, he came into the world and he did everything that God wanted him to do perfectly. And then he died. And my friends, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the active obedience of Christ, the reputation, the testimony of Christ is given to you through Christ. Now, I don't know all of you super good, but I know most of you well enough to know that you do not always do what God wants you to do, do you? Of course you don't. You don't always, you, you don't always do everything God wants you to do. How many times have you, have you felt the pricking of the Holy Spirit to do something and decided not to do it? Anybody like that? Boy, I have. I've been in places where I feel like the Lord will mean to speak to somebody about the gospel, share the gospel, and I thought, I ain't not here. <laughs> not, in this, not in this situation. I felt prompted to pray before and thought, yeah, I'll pray later. I didn't do it. But all of Christ's obedience, his active obedience is imputed to you. So when God the Father looks at you who put your faith in Christ, God sees you as if you have always been obeying him perfectly in every single way. Always. This is the beautiful thing about the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Of course, this is a gift. How do you receive a gift? It's in Romans 10, 9 through 13. Paul uses, again, these these very easy to understand terms. Though with the heart we believe, and with the mouth we confess. Has to be sincere from your heart. Has to be a sincere faith in Christ. And if you call upon Christ to save you, you don't have to know all the answers. There's no theological test to become a Christian. You don't have to know all the books of the Bible. You don't have to know what comes first, Habakkuk or Haggai. You don't have to know the the Italian prophet, Malucci. 
That's Malachi. <laughs> a pastor I worked for used to call him the Italian prophet. And uh, he would say Malucci. It's because he was Italian. In order to go to heaven, what you have to do is sincerely call upon Christ to save you, and Christ will save you. It's really that simple. And if Christ does save you when you call upon him, you will know it. Because with that confession is the Holy Spirit working through you to confess it. And the Holy Spirit will start rearranging the furniture of your life. He'll move into your heart and he'll start rearranging things. You're not going to like where he puts stuff at first. He's going to put the bed by the window. He's going to put the couch, you know, by the window. He's going to put the chair by the window. (laughs) He's going to put the rugs where he wants it. He's going to rearrange the inside. He's going to rearrange your inner person to suit him. Because now you belong to God. So this is where being a disciple of Christ begins. It begins with a decision, a desire, or a hunger to believe the gospel, to believe the good news that Jesus died for you. That's where it begins. Now let's walk through these seven things. You ready? I'm going to try to do it right quick. You ready? You ready? There you go. All right. Number one. The first step is to get baptized. Many pastors will say the first step in discipleship is baptism. It's to become identified with Christ through the waters of baptism. Listen to Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. Now, I'll say this at the front. Not everybody believes that this is water baptism. I do think it's water baptism. If you don't, that's okay. It's okay. You have the right to be wrong. (laughs) What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Paul is reminding Christians who have begun to live in sin. He says, I want you guys to remember your baptism. And remember that when you were baptized, you were buried in the water. And that's symbolically saying the old life is dead. And when you were raised up out of the water, symbolically saying, now I'm walking in the new way. I was dead in sins. Now I'm alive in Christ. Paul's not saying that the water saves you. What he is saying is that the water is your testimony. I belong to Jesus and now I'm rising to live with him. To live a life that's new. Verse 4. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know That Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. For the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. 
Do not present your members, your body, as instruments of unrighteousness. Instead, present your body to Christ as instruments of righteousness. There's a guy, he, he pastored here in Michigan for a little while, but New Jersey, Michigan, back in New Jersey. His name's Albert Martin. Albert Martin, on this passage, he says, Christian person, on the palms of your hands, you have the sign of the cross, the sign of death. On your, on your eyes, you have the sign, sign of the cross, the sign of death. Upon your heart, the sign of the cross, the sign of death. You have died to sin. You don't belong to the old, the old world, the old life. You have been raised to follow Christ. Don't continue in your sins. Now, Albert Martin, he goes on and says some things I, I don't know if I would necessarily say. But basically, he's saying this. Your whole body has a big fat cross tattooed to it. And you need to remember that. You belong to Christ. You don't belong to yourself. That old life is dead. That old life is dead. Remember the Apostle Paul when he was baptized? Not baptized, but on the road to Damascus? Before he was a Christian, he was known as what? Saul. After he became a Christian and was baptized, he was known as Paul. There was a time in, the, in world history, in church history, where people who were, when they were baptized, they would receive a Christian name, a baptismal name. And that was their way of saying, I'm not the guy I used to be. I'm somebody different now. I belong to Christ. I'm a disciple of Christ. At some point in your life as a believer, you need to devote yourself to Jesus Christ as Lord. And you need to begin to live to please the Lord. He should put Him first in your life. And people often say, this is what I said when I was younger, I would say, well, how can I be sure that putting God first is going to make me happy? Because it looked to me like Christians weren't really super happy all the time. My dad, he'd whip out this little verse and stick it in my eye. Here it is. You ready? Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Put the Lord where he ought to be, and he will make you happy. He will make you happy. God, believe it or not, God does want you to be happy. And he has made it possible for you to be happy. Put him where he ought to be in your life. People, people get the wrong idea about God. People, it's like the Garden of Eden all over again. I've said this to you guys so many times, it's probably redundant to say. But in the Garden of Eden, Satan's big win was he got Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve to think that God wanted to make them sad. Remember? Satan's wrapped around the tree in the snake's, in the snake's body. And Eve came to the tree, and Eve said, and, and the serpent said to Eve, Has God said you can eat of every tree? And she says, No. God says we can eat of every tree except this one tree. We can't eat of it or touch it lest we die. And Satan says, You know why that is? It's because he knows that if you eat of that tree of knowledge, you'll be a god yourself. You see, what it was is Satan was 
this is just an illustration. Um, I've noticed around here in this part of Michigan, and this, and this is universal, it doesn't matter, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, you know, wherever there's water and fishing, okay? If somebody says, man, I caught a pile of fish yesterday, what's, what's your first question? Where? And what do people not want to tell you? Where? Because that's their honey hole. Or you may say, well, what'd you catch it on? Ah, you know, something I had in a box. Worms. You know, if, if somebody tells you exactly what they caught the fish on, they're lying. <laughs> That's what I think. Look <laughs> in a line. That's exactly right. Satan got them to think that God was out to make them miserable. And, and Satan's doing the same thing today. The exact same thing. He wants you to think that if you put God in the center of your life, if you make God Lord, if you put Him on the throne, if you submit to God, Satan wants you to think that if you do that, your life will be yucky, yucky. But my friends, I can tell you from personal experience that if you put Christ on the throne of your life, if you make Him Lord, if you follow Him, if you devote yourself to Him, your life will not be yucky, yucky. But if you don't follow the Lord, your life will be yucky, yucky. You guys know what yucky, yucky means? I mean, just awful. Just, just rotten. Put Christ where he ought to be. Delight yourself in the Lord. We see that also in Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. The second thing is to live by the steady light of God's word, not the shooting star of worldly wisdom. Psalms 119 verse 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. God's word is a sure light for your life. It's the light you need. You need it. Psalms 119 verse 130, if I'm not mistaken, in the authorized version, says, the entrance of your words gives light. Now, the ESV and NIV don't say it that way. I wish they did, because the entrance of light, I can see how that works. I can see how it works. This morning, I was in the bedroom. Valerie was doing her hair, and I got out my white shirt they got right now. I got out the ironing board. Brothers. And I plugged in the iron. Got my little can of starch, put my shirt on there and sprayed my shirt and started ironing it. But then I realized I can't see too good. And so I turned the ironing board this way so the light from our overhead light would shine on that shirt. And I was like, boom, now I can see those wrinkles. Let's kill them all. (sighs) Iron that shirt. The light makes such a difference. I've been sitting there at the house before reading You know, I'm reading, and the book's getting closer and closer and closer and closer. And Valerie will come in, and she'll flip on the light. I'm like, wow! The light makes such a difference. You guys ever work with a headlight, the thing you put on your head, get that little light on there? Have you ever put it on and forgot to turn it on? I was up underneath the Lacey's car one day working on on the exhaust system, and I had that light on. I was like, I can't see nothing! Then click, oh, (laughs) 
God's word is light. You want to have some light for the dark stuff you're going through in your life? Flip on the word. Flip on the light. Flip on the light of that word. God's word is a light. Live by the steady light of God's word. If you try to get all your instructions and guidance from the internet or Google or from the culture we live in, you're going to have shooting star stuff. There and gone, there and gone, there and gone. I remember as a kid growing up, my grandma, she was a news-watching fool. And I remember there was, this, there was this big saga about eggs and cholesterol. You guys remember that? And everybody's trying, they're trying to get everybody off of eggs because eggs are going to what? Eggs are going to kill you. I remember my grandma, we're sitting at the, at the table. Now, my grandma was a great Christian because she had a TV on the kitchen table. <laughs> and so we're all sitting there eating supper, watching the news. And this guy, this truck driver guy, they said, how many eggs do you eat in one day? He said, I think I eat a dozen eggs every day. My grandma went, oh! <laughs> she, was, she was tore up by this guy's consumption of eggs as a kid i I was there thinking why do you care (laughs) we don't know him (laughs) but now what they say about eggs now they eat them you know butter was bad for you margarine good now it's the opposite right butter good margarine bad i mean it just changes all the cotton picking time you never know the shooting star of this world the sure word of God doesn't change. You say, well, what about all these Christians who have changed their interpretations of some things? Well, I got, I'll tell you something. Christianity has a Latin phrase that kind of goes with our, our, our life. It's semper reformanda. Always reforming. Christians are always trying to understand the Bible better and right. And I'm going to say, Christianity is trying every day to apply God's word and understand God's word better, better. So you're going to see some changes in Christian positions, but not on the main things, not the fundamentals of the faith, but you'll see some applications that do change. Do change. I was talking to, I'm not going to say that. Let's go to the third thing. Commit to a church. Commit to a church. Now, I wish everybody would, would commit to faith. I wish everybody in Sheboygan County would commit to Faith Baptist Church, don't you? I do because, you know, we have a lot bigger building, a lot more people to look at, new, new, <laughs> new people to hear my jokes. <laughs> Be great. But, you know, you need to commit to a church, a local fellowship of believers. Now, when we talk about the church, people will say, oh, the church this, the church that. Most of the time, people are talking about the universal body of Christ. But you know, of the 113 times in the New Testament the word ecclesia appears, this translated as the word church, 109 of those times, it is not talking about the mystical universal body of Christ. You know what it's talking about? It's talking about local visible churches. So commit to a local church. A local church. Find a church. Find a church that believes God's word is true. Find a church that teaches the way of the cross leads home. Find a church and commit to it. Stop dating the church. Stop dating around. You know, people at this church here, this church here, this church, they're always, find one church and stick with it. You say, well, what if that church goes sideways? 
Well, in the words of John MacArthur, stay there until it's upside down. (laughs) W.A. Gerald said that a church only ceases to be a Bible-believing church when the error of that church becomes permanent. When that church gives no indication at all that they're going to correct their ways, if they, if they you know, just voted into the Constitution, they're going to do something against the Bible, then leave. But find a church and commit to it. Say, well, churches, they have good times and bad times. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. This church has had good times, hasn't it? And this church has had bad times, hasn't it? And it's going to have both again, good times and bad times. There's going to be times when you're going to love coming to church. It's going to be, it's going to be like nitrous injection when you go. Then other times, you're going to wish that they were paying you to go. <laughs> I'll tell you something funny. I was talking to a guy one time at my church in Arkansas, and I said, and he wasn't really being faithful to church, and I said, uh, I started to say his name. But I said, hey, buddy, I said, what you need to do is be faithful to church. He's like, oh, yeah? I said, yeah. I said, buddy, I'm there Sunday school. I'm there Sunday morning. I'm there Sunday night, and I'm there Wednesday night, and you need to be there too. It'll do you a world of good. And he said, don't you get paid to be there? (laughs) I said, yep. (laughs) I took that out of my repertoire. (laughs) Commit to church. Commit to a church. Quit, quit messing around. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25 tells us that we need the church. So we can exhort one another and help one another. Exhorting one another so much the more as you see the day approaching, the last day. You need the church. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. Be as faithful to church as you can be, as you can be. In Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42, that very first church, after Pentecost, it says they committed themselves to fellowship, to the apostles' doctrine, and to breaking bread, that's having communion together. Commit to a church. Number four, give some of your money to the church. You see, preachers always talk about money. We have to talk about money because the Bible talks about money. Give some of your earnings to the church. How much should you give? 90%. (laughs) In Arkansas, the church I was, I worked at my brother-in-law, pastor pastor there, I was his assistant pastor, and they had offering envelopes that were, they were marked whole hog Sunday. And that was when you're supposed to give a whole paycheck one Sunday a year. Now, to be honest with you, I've only done that one time, and I really wasn't too happy about the outcome. (laughs) But I'm so glad that God in His Word, He says in 2 Corinthians 9, He says, let's read it. I don't want to misquote it, because I already said 90, didn't I? Look at 2 Corinthians 9. Listen to the reading. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who, he who supplies seed to the power and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Give. What should you give? Give what you can give happily. Give what you can give happily for a long time. I remember my first church in Texas, I was pastoring there, and I had to wrap my, I had to make, my, my start became my, First became a pastor, I made a lot less money than I made working a regular job. Now, praise be to God, this church takes excellent care of me and my family, for which I give you great thanks for that. Great thanks. When I first started out, though, little church, not big salary, and I can remember writing out my tithe check. <laughs> and throwing it in the offering plate with malice. <laughs> I started thinking, why do I got to give them back the money they're giving me? <laughs> but somewhere along the path, I realized, just give, give what makes you happy to give. Which meant I didn't write a tithe all the time. I gave what I could give. And I can say now, you know, the Lord has blessed us. We never missed a meal. We never had the lights shut off unless we forgot to mail the check. <laughs> if you give, God will bless you for it. And you say you got to start out. You got to start out somewhere. Where should you start out? What percentage? Ninety. Put God to the test. Give something to the church. Give something to the church. give it regularly, give it every week, give it with happiness in your heart. And I think this text of Scripture says, the he that soweth sparingly, sows a little, will reap a little, right? And he that sows a lot will reap a lot, right? That's what it says. That's what it says. But most of all, give it with happiness in your heart. Give it with joy. Give Give what you can with joy. Start somewhere and give it with joy. Now, Bob Gammon, who's not here, but Bob told me that his, past, his old pastor in Florida would, I can't remember the guy's name, but he would, he would give this challenge to the church. He'd say, give to the church for six months, and if God doesn't bless you, we'll give it back to you. I thought, what a crazy plan. <laughs> but that's how confident that guy was that God would bless. That's how con- Now, I'm not, I'm not as spiritual as that guy was. But that's how confident he is in it. Give something. Of course, you know Jesus says, where your heart is, there's your treasure also. Fishing season's coming. Hallelujah. Praise be to God. Amen. Fishing through ice is not fishing. (laughs) But the real fishing's coming. (laughs) You know, and I, I don't even want to think about how much money I'm thinking about spending this year for fishing. And, and why, why do I want to spend it? Because I love it. I love it. I love it more than anything. <laughs> anyway, let's move on. Number five. Start praying and don't stop praying. 
1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Start praying and don't stop praying. I heard one pastor say, Start praying, get God, call God's number, 7777777. Get God on the phone and then shoulder the phone. You guys remember when we used to shoulder the phone? Before we had speaker phones and Bluetooth. Remember? Remember the phone? How many of you sisters ever worked at a place where you had a phone with that extender on the back of it? You guys remember those? Shoulder the phone. Get God on the line and don't stop talking to Him. My friend Mark Langley, he said Christians always pray enough because we pray more than we think we do. You don't have to be down on your knees somewhere to pray, tucked away in the closet. That's a good place to pray, but that's not the only place you pray. You're praying all the time. Last night I got a phone call, disturbed me a little bit, and I started praying. Lord, what should, what should I do? What should I say? How's this going to go? What's, what, what, what's this going to be? What's, what's going to be the outcome here? God, I don't know what I would even say to this. Pray. Start praying and don't stop praying. But Pray. Make your request made known to God. You say, well, I don't quite know what to pray. Matthew 6, 9, 9 through 15 is the, is the Lord's prayer, the model prayer. It's a lovely prayer to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy will be done on earth as in heaven. Thy kingdom come, etc. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, that he would that we should, that first of all, that prayers and thanksgivings and intercessions be made for all men. It's a striking reading, praying. Start praying and don't stop. Now, there, there are things that will stop you from praying, and some of those things are things like this. If you go a while without praying, and then you decide, well, I'm going to pray, there'll be a voice in your head that'll say, how dare you pray? Who do you think you are to talk to God? You haven't talked to God in nine months on purpose. That voice will say, don't, don't, don't even start to pray. How dare you pray? And then your heart will say, well, you've got too much sin in your life to pray. You've got to get all these sins out of your life before you start praying. Friends, none of that's in the Bible. That's, that's, that's the devil and your fallen nature trying to keep you from praying. The, the little letter of James says, we have not because we ask not. Pray. It wouldn't hurt to pray big prayers. What's the biggest prayer you ever prayed? You ever think about that? The biggest prayer you ever prayed? The biggest prayer I think I've ever prayed in my whole life was I prayed for a little while, not a long time, about three months. I prayed that North Korea would become open to missions. Because you cannot be a Christian in North Korea. You can't have a Bible in there. It's a closed country. And I prayed for three months every day. But that, that, to me, that's the biggest prayer like scale I've ever prayed. You know, I stopped, you know why I stopped after three months? It didn't happen. So I quit praying about it. But you know what? It might happen tomorrow. It might happen tomorrow. How many times you got to pray about something to get it done? Well, who knows? Could be one time, one prayer. One prayer prayed today may result in thousands of people being saved a decade from now. 
Just pray. Pray. Number six, witness. Be a witness for Christ. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, But you shall, you shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. After the Holy Spirit comes upon you. I'm going to turn back then and read it because I'm sure I quoted it the wrong way. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Be a witness. Now, I put there martyr yourself because the Greek word for witness here is the word martyrion, which means to martyr. To martyr. Did you know when you witness for people, you're going to martyr yourself? Because if you go up to somebody you know and say, hey, can I tell you about Jesus? Their perception of you is going to change like that. Big time. They're going to, they're going to start thinking about you in a different way. They're going to say, uh-oh, Bible thumper, fanatic, Wacko, Christian, they're going to they're gonna think about you in a different way. So I say martyr yourself. Do it. Let them think less of you. It doesn't matter. I wrestle with this all the time, this thing about this martyring yourself, because the last thing I want to tell people is that I'm a preacher, pastor. You know why? Because the minute I say, hey, I'm a pastor, they get weird. If they have any kind of churchianity about them at all, they start acting really weird. Oh, I'm sorry for what I said a minute ago. Like, I'm not God. You have to apologize to me. Or, or, or they'll talk about regular stuff. Oh, you know, maybe you don't laugh at that kind of stuff. I'm like, relax, man. I'm just a fellow like you. People get weird. And you know how it is. If you tell somebody you're a Christian, sometimes they'll look at you a little weird. Just do it. I mean, I wrestle with it. I'm telling you that I'm being transparent. I wrestle with it. But we got to just do it, don't we? We just have to step out there and say, look, I'm a Christian. Tell people about Christ. If you love the people around you, you'll want to tell them about Christ. And the seventh thing is... Uh, I read this. This is in the Bible reading this week, Luke 14. And to be honest with you, I, cr- I cried after I read it because it's, te- it's a crying text. It's a sobering text in Scripture. Listen to, what, listen to what Jesus said to the crowds who gathered around him. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish all who see it, began to mock him, saying, This man began to build but was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? 
And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Jesus says to all the people who are following me, following him, he says, if you follow me, it could cost you everything. It could cost you everything. And that's true. This is what Jesus says. Now, some of us, because we've lived in America our whole lives, grown up in a Christian church with Christian family, we may not experience this. But it happens all the time to Christians. And just because you are a Christian and you've raised your family in church doesn't mean that your family is going to follow you in the way of the cross. This is sobering. This is sobering talk. I thought about giving a whole sermon about this, but I didn't think that I could emotionally handle giving it to you because of the implications. Striking, isn't it? Be prepared. It is possible that not everyone you love will follow Christ with you. Some people go to heaven in a crowd. Some people go all alone. And that's, that's, the, that's the truth. Following Christ. Following Christ. If you want to be an exceptional disciple, you want to be a, a disciplined follower of Christ, these are the things we have to work at. And to fulfill number seven, your affections, your deepest loves have to be transcendent. Colossians 3 says, if you are risen with Christ, let your affections be above above. Now, when I pray for my family, I pray Acts 16.31. It says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. I was in my, my dad's old church in, uh, in Illinois. Pastor Tom Pullen was there and Pastor Pullen had five kids. I got five kids. Not all of Pastor Pullen's kids were following the Lord. Not all my kids followed the Lord. And uh, we were talking and he said, every day I pray, he said, he actually said it in a more tender way, but he said, I claim Acts 16.31 for my whole family. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved and your house. And your house. You know what's striking about that? Is Pastor Pullen, he's now dead. He died. He stayed at that church so long, they started passing out while he was preaching and so one Sunday, he came up there and bungee quartered himself to the pulpit. <laughs> I ain't leaving this pulpit. <laughs> what, a, what, a, what a guy, man. After he died, he had five kids, and, and they had kids and kids and kids. He had kids and grandkids. And after he died... Two of his children who'd been in the far country, away from God. Two of them, after he died. He died 84 years old, so his kids are old too. Because you're old if you're over 50. (laughs) Sorry. You're mature. (laughs) They came back to the Lord after he died. Committed to a church, not his church because they'd moved away. His grandchildren... At his funeral, 
One of his grandkids stood up and said, Papa always asked me, talked to me about the Lord and about getting saved. And he said, I just want everybody to know that during the sermon today at Papa's funeral, I've asked Christ to be my Savior. I mean, poof. So claim some verses, man. That's the, I mean, that's what I'm doing. Because, because it's going to go beyond you. It's following Christ is, 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 is serious. It's important. Well, let's pray together. While your head's bowed and your eyes closed, I want to ask you a question. Are you a believer? Have you committed your life to Christ? Have you done it? Have you called upon Him? Have your sins been forgiven by the precious blood of Christ? Secondly, are you ready to start the path to exceptional discipleship? You've been a Christian for a while. You've made some decisions. You've put your faith in Christ. You ready to take the next step? Ready to start to follow Him? Put on the Christian jersey? Join the team? Step out and go public with your faith? You ready to start? Thirdly, maybe you're here and you've, you're a believer and you've been trying to be a disciple for a long time. But maybe you've found yourself just failing over and over again. Maybe your failures have gotten you so defeated that you're thinking in your mind, why should I even bother? Start again. If you play video games, you might know this phrase. There are unlimited respawns. There are new lives for you. New chance. God's mercies are new every single day. Failed him yesterday. Today, he says, here's a brand new day. Fail him today. Tomorrow, he'll say, here's a brand new day. Unlimited chances. He's not just a God of second chances. It's third, fourth, fifth, sixth, hundreds of chances. Follow Christ. Try again. Try again. The Lord, He'll take you. He still loves you. He still loves you. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this time to be together with my friends and loved ones here. I pray that you bless these words to their hearts. Oh, Lord, I pray you help me to be the disciple that I ought to be. I'm plagued with my own shortcomings. I pray you'd help me, Lord. Forgive me where I failed you. Help me, Lord, I pray. Help my friends and loved ones here. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen.